want you to imagine for a moment that you're a missionary in Africa. You're living there, serving there, doing ministry there, sharing the gospel in a village, and a bunch of people respond, including one of the elders of the village. Great news, right? But there's a complication. This man is one of the wealthier people in the village, has two wives. Polygamy is not common in their culture, but it's not prohibited either. As a Christian, you know that God's design for marriage is one man, one woman for life. And so we've got a bit of a problem here. But at the same time, you also know that God expects us, his people, to be faithful to their marriage covenants, commitments. And to divorce one of his wives would almost certainly mean that she and her children would then become impoverished. And even if there are some divorce exceptions in the Bible, polygamy is not listed as one of them. And don't try to tell me that there are polygamous marriages in the Old Testament, because while that's true, it's never endorsed. And I would challenge you to find one example of it in the Old Testament that actually works out well. I think there's a message in that. But what would you tell this man who wants to be faithful, this village elder who wants to now be faithful to following Jesus? What would you say to him? I, I don't know. I mean, what would you say to him? On the one hand, he's in a marriage that does not fit God's design or intent for marriage. But on the other hand, for him to divorce one of his wives is to try to make two wrongs into a right. And that's never a good idea. It seems that no matter what this man decides to do, there's no way that he's going to not be outside of something that God commands us in the Scriptures. I know what you're thinking. Just don't do ministry in Africa. (laughs) But that doesn't really work either, does it? Because maybe here in America we don't have... Polygamy, but we have same-sex marriage. Let's say you lead a same-sex couple to Christ, and then they ask you what to do. Do you tell them to stay together but live celibately? Should they divorce and live as single men or women? What if they have children? What counsel do you give them, and why? What if you lead a man or woman who's transgender to Christ? They've already medically transitioned. What do you tell them? Should they remain as they are? Should they transition again? What kind of counsel would you give them? 
and why? You know, that second example especially may seem kind of sensational, um, but it's actually real. But more importantly, what it illustrates is that sometimes when we want to live and do ministry faithfully in a beautiful but broken world, we're going to find ourselves in some really messy and complicated situations where it's just not really clear what is the right thing for us to say and do and recommend to others. So what are we supposed to do? We're going to talk about that this morning. We're in a current series uh, from the Old Testament book of Joshua. This is a book that tells us how the Israelites entered and then conquered the land of Canaan. This is a book that shows us how God was faithful to keeping one of the great promises that he made to Abraham, the promise of a great homeland uh, for his descendants. And this is a book that God is designed to still speak to us today. And so this morning, we are going to see the Israelites get themselves into one heck of a complicated, messy situation. We're going to learn what they did wrong, and then eventually right to resolve it. And as we do that, we're going to consider what their example can teach us as we seek to live faithfully in following Jesus in a world that's beautiful but broken, and therefore oftentimes very messy and complicated. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to Joshua chapter 9. Joshua chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible with you or a Bible app on your smartphone or tablet, grab one of those red Bibles in front of you and you can follow along. And if you're using one of our red Bibles, we're going to be on page 342. Joshua chapter 9, page 342 in the red Bible. Now, to this point in the book of Joshua, uh, Joshua and the Israelites, they've entered the promised land, and they have conquered two cities. The first, Jericho, went really well, total victory. The second, Ai, did not. Not only did Israel lose some 30 soldiers in this battle, leaving dozens of families without husbands and fathers and brothers, but even more troubling, this debacle in Ai signaled to the other cities there in Canaan that Joshua and the Israelites were perhaps not invincible. If a small town like Ai could turn them back, then maybe a larger, more unified, and better equipped force could actually defeat them and once and for all drive them out of the promised land. So look at how chapter 9 begins. Now, when all the kings west of the Jordan heard about these things, the kings in the hill country and the western foothills and along the entire coast of the Mediterranean Sea, as far as Lebanon, the kings of the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, they came together to wage war against Joshua in Israel. So a storm is coming, an alliance that is going to put to the test God's commitment to give this land to his specially chosen people. But that's not what we're going to talk about today. We will eventually, but not today. Because even as the kings of the Hittites and Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites are forming an alliance to fight against Joshua and the Israelites, 
There is one group of Canaanites that are not on board for this. See, the Gibeonites still are not sure that they can win this battle. And so instead of pursuing war, they look for a way in order to make peace with Israel, no matter what it takes. Look at verse 3. However, when the people of Gibeon heard, that, heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they resorted to a ruse. They went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with worn-out sacks and old wineskins cracked and mended. They put worn and patched sandals on their feet, and they wore old clothes. All the bread of their food supply was dry and moldy. Then they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and the Israelites, We have come from a distant country. Make a treaty with us. Now, to really understand and appreciate this ruse that the Gibeonites are, are trying to pull off here, we need to understand or we need to remember what God had told the Israelites that they must do about the people in Canaan. One place that we find this described for us, God's instructions to them, is in Deuteronomy 20. It basically goes like this. Everyone that Israel encounters in the land of Canaan is to be fully devoted to God through their complete destruction. Deuteronomy 20, it says, However, in the cities of the nations that the Lord your God is giving to you as an inheritance, meaning Canaan, do not leave alive anything that breathes. Completely destroy them, the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Otherwise, they will teach you to follow all the detestable things that they do in worshiping their gods, and you will sin against the Lord your God. The Gibeonites clearly understand that this is what God has told the Israelites to do. But the Gibeonites also know that for cities outside the land of Canaan, the command is actually different. For cities outside the land of Canaan, the Israelites are actually told that they are to first offer them a peace treaty. Also in Deuteronomy 20, it says, When you march up to attack a city, make its people an offer of peace. If they accept and open their gates, all the people in it shall be subject to forced labor and shall work for you. But if they refuse to make peace and they engage you in battle, lay siege to that city. When the Lord your God delivers it into your hand, put to the sword all the men in it. As for the women, the children, the livestock, and everything else in this city, you may take these as plunder for yourselves. And you may use the plunder the Lord, and you may use the plunder the Lord your God gives you from your enemies. This is how you are to treat all the cities that are at a distance from you and do not belong to the nations nearby. So in order, for the, in, order for the, in order for the Gibeonites to be able to get a peace treaty with Israel, they have to convince Israel that they've come from a long, long ways away. And so they put on their most worn-out clothing. They load their animals with food that is already old and moldy and stale. They pack wine and wineskins that are already old and cracked. 
If this plan of theirs is going to succeed, they have to sell this idea that they've come from a long, long distance away. Verse 7, back in in, uh, Joshua 9. The Israelites said to the Hivites, uh, Gibeonites are part of the Hivites. Israelites said to the Hivites, but perhaps you live near us. So how can we make a treaty with you? We're your servants, they said to Joshua. But Joshua asked, who are you? And, And where do you come from? And they answered, your servants have come from a very distant country because of the fame of the Lord your God. For we have heard reports of him, all that he did in Egypt, all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, Sihon, king of Heshbon, Og, king of Bashan, who reigned at Ashtoreth. And our elders and all those living in our country said to us, take provisions for your journey. Go and meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Make a treaty with us. This bread of ours was warm when we packed it at home on the day that we left to come to you. But see how dry and moldy it is now. And these wineskins that we filled were new, but see how cracked they are. And our clothes and, and sandals, they're worn out by this very long journey. Notice how the Gibeonites never really answered Joshua's question while simultaneously telling the Israelites exactly what the Israelites wanted to hear. Do you live near us? We want to be your servants. Who are you? Where do you come from? Oh, man, we hear your God is awesome. Clearly, you guys are a blessed people. Look how moldy our bread is. Look how worn out our clothing is. You can make a treaty with us. So can they pull it off? Does Israel believe them? Let's find out. Verse 14. Israelites sampled their provisions, but did not inquire of the Lord. Then Joshua made a treaty of peace with them and let them live. And the leaders of the assembly ratified it with an oath. That was a mistake. And now they are going to have one heck of a mess that they have to deal with. But before we see what they do about it, let's make sure that we understand how they got into this situation. I mean, part of it's really obvious. While they checked the provisions, they never checked with God. But there's something else. There's something else here that set the Israelites up to make this mistake. And that is this. The Israelites were too willing to believe what they wanted to hear. And see, the Gibeonites knew exactly what it was that the Israelites wanted to hear. Your God is awesome. You guys are clearly so blessed. We live far away. We're willing to serve you. I mean, everything that the Gibeonites say to them is exactly what Israel wants to hear. 
And then they offer peace and service. And, and that probably sounded really, really good to the Israelites. Maybe it should have sounded too good. And accepting what they wanted to hear set the Israelite leaders up for their very biggest mistake. And that is that they did not inquire of the Lord. They didn't pray about it. They had this really important decision to make, and they didn't seek direction or confirmation from God about it first. Because maybe it just seemed so obvious. Maybe this decision to them just seemed so clear. Maybe the opportunity before them just seemed like such a good one. Whatever it was, whatever it was, the Israelites... But the leaders of the Israelites swore an oath of peace to the Gibeonites. But can you see how easy it is to make this kind of a mistake? Being too willing to believe something just because it fits with what it is that we want to hear. Being too quick to accept something just because it's something that we want to be true. I mean, think about all of the ads that we see for weight loss supplements for special exercise workout programs, especially all the ones that we get on social media. They tell you, just take this pill or just do this one exercise for only 10 minutes a day and you too can look like a bathing suit model by spring break. <laughs> I mean, we hear that. Is that too good to be true? Yes. But all sorts of people still give their money to it. Why? Because we want it to be true. But the ads for real estate investment seminars, the promise of easy money made through buying and selling crypto, cryptocurrencies. Um, you follow this in the news or not, but just in the last couple of weeks, one of the biggest cryptocurrency exchanges in the world collapsed and went bankrupt. It's a company that, that just a year ago was running ads during the Super Bowl. And yet, right now, it looks like the loss to investors is going to end up being well into the billions of dollars lost. Do these promises of easy wealth seem too good to be true? Yes. Do lots of people invest anyway? Yes. Why? Because we want it to be true. We do this in relationships. We want to believe that that special someone that we've met really is a Christian. Or that person who's hurt us in the past really is repentant and really is committed to changing. In fact, we so want it to be true that we, we overlook what is otherwise questionable, behavior, questionable behaviors. We minimize what are clearly warning signs. We cling instead to what they say because what they are saying is what we want to believe is actually true. Of course, we do this with our leaders. I mean, a savvy politician knows exactly what it is that we want to hear. They know that if, if they say the right words, then people are going to be willing to downplay their inconsistencies. They know that if they make the right promises, then people are going to be willing to ignore their gaping character flaws 
because what we want to believe, we want to believe that what they're saying is what's true. Now, this is, this is not just something that happens in politics. It also happens in the church. A popular pastor can fail morally but stay in the pulpit after doing little more than saying sorry because the congregation just wants to believe them. Prominent Christian leaders can get away with flimsy excuses for really bad behaviors because their boards want to believe them. Now, I'm not trying to turn us all into suspicious cynics. That's not the message here. The point I'm trying to make is what we do need to do is acknowledge how strong the temptation is to believe something just because we want it to be true. Whether we're talking about health or wealth or relationships or popular leaders. And one of the very best ways for us to counter this temptation is to do the very thing that the Israelites failed to do, and that is talk to God before we make these kinds of decisions. Now, there's certainly a way that people can try to use prayer as a way to, to sanctify or to justify the position that they want. That's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about, what I'm suggesting to you, what I'm telling you we need to do, we must do, is that we must use prayer as a way to honestly ask God about our decisions and positions we want to take. I'm talking about prayer that sounds much more like this. God, you know this opportunity, it seems almost too good to be true. Is it? Father, this seems like a really good opportunity right here in front of me. But is this one that you want me to be involved in? Jesus, I, I really want to get back together with this girl or I really like this guy, but is this the right thing for me to do? Holy Spirit, it's time for me to cast my vote and perhaps try and convince others to do the same thing. But is this a person that you want me to openly support and to identify with? You know, the Israelites, they thought that the answer was really clear. So clear that they did not feel the need to honestly ask God about the decision before them. And because they were too quick to believe what it is that they wanted to hear, they got it wrong. And now things are going to get really messy because they're going to find themselves in a situation to which there's now no obvious answer. Let's go look back at the text. Verse 16. Three days after they made the treaty with the Gibeonites, the Israelites heard that they were neighbors living near them. And so the Israelites set out, and on the third day, they came to their cities. Gibeon, Kephirah, Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the Israelites did not attack them. 
because the leaders of the assembly had sworn an oath to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. And the whole assembly grumbled against the leaders. But all the leaders answered, we've given them our oath by the Lord, the God of Israel, and we cannot touch them now. This is is what we will do to them. We will let them live so that God's wrath will not fall on us for breaking the oath that we swore to them. They continued, let them live, but let them be woodcutters and water carriers in the service of the whole assembly. And so the leader's promise to them was kept. Now, it actually seems that most of the Israelites still wanted to attack and destroy the Gibeonites. In fact, they grumbled when their leaders would not allow them to do this. I mean, maybe some of these, maybe some of them were just kind of legalists. They knew what the law demanded. They're deeply committed to following the law to its very letter. Law of Moses said Canaanites are supposed to die, and so in their minds, Canaanites needed to die. Maybe others were opportunists. Allowing the Gibeonites to live meant that they couldn't plunder these four cities. Maybe some of them just wanted revenge. Revenge for having fooled them, or having made them look kind of naive and silly, even foolish. But whatever their motivations may have been, these Israelites, they were unhappy that their leaders decided to honor this treaty that they'd made. And so the Israelite leaders, they find themselves in a pretty tough spot. Because they'd been too willing to believe what they wanted to hear, and they'd failed to seek direction from God, they were now forced into a very complicated, very messy, very unpopular decision. On the one hand, they had a clear command in the law of Moses to fully devote the Canaanites to God through their destruction, through their utter destruction. A command that also explicitly prohibited them from making peace treaties with them. But on the other hand, they'd sworn an oath in Yahweh's name that they wouldn't kill the Gibeonites. And so to kill them now would require them breaking a sacred oath, a pretty clear violation of the the third commandment, which prohibits using or bearing or representing God's name in vain. And anyway, can two wrongs really make a right? I mean, that's moral math that just doesn't work. And so this is pretty serious stuff with no clear solution. But it's also a mess of their own making because they'd been too willing to believe what they wanted to hear. And they failed to bring this decision to God. And so in the end, the leaders of the Israelites, they're forced to make a very unpopular decision. They decide to honor the treaty, presumably believing that they needed to prioritize an oath made in Yahweh's name over this command to destroy all the Canaanites. Kind of a mess, isn't it?
but it's also not the end of the story. In a careful reader of this text, might notice that Joshua's name hasn't come up since the treaty was initially made. It's almost as if the author of the text is preparing us for Joshua to come in with a new and better solution to this problem. Before we look at it, though, it's important that we remember who Joshua is in this text, in this book of Joshua. Joshua is the new Moses. Joshua is the one who's sent by God to lead his specially chosen people into the promised land. Joshua is the one that God calls to be strong and to be courageous. Joshua is the one who speaks the law and knows the law, who obeys the law, who meditates on the law. This is a responsibility and an obligation that Joshua must bear because as they enter into their new home, Joshua is going to have to help the Israelites navigate all sorts of situations that are not specifically addressed in their law. There's no verse in Deuteronomy that says, when you really make a bad treaty with the Canaanites, this now is what you're supposed to do. Yet this is exactly where Joshua finds himself. But as someone who has saturated himself in the scriptures, allowing it to shape both his heart and his mind, he now rises to the occasion. Now, let me read to you what he does. And once I read it, I will then point out to you the significance of his slightly different but significantly better solution to this mess. Look at verse 22. Then Joshua summoned the Gibeonites and said, Why did you deceive us by saying, We live a long way from you? Well, actually, you live near us. You're now under a curse. You will never be released from service as woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, Your servants were clearly told how the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you the whole land and to wipe out all of its inhabitants before you. So we feared for our lives because of you. And that is why we did this. We are now in your hands. Do to us whatever seems good and right to you. And so Joshua saved them from the Israelites, and they did not kill them. That day he made the Gibeonites woodcutters and water carriers for the assembly to provide for the needs of the altar of the Lord, at the place the Lord would choose. And that is what they are to this day. What Joshua decides to do here is not quite the same as what the leaders of the Israelites had decided to do. The leaders of the Israelites made the Gibeonites woodcutters and water carriers in service of the whole assembly. 
In, in, in other words, for everyone, they basically reduce these people to servanthood or to servitude. But Joshua, he adjusts this just a little bit, making them instead woodcutters and water carriers for the house of God and for the needs of the altar of the Lord at the place that the Lord would choose. In other words, Joshua has fully devoted them to God. Joshua has found a way to both honor the oath, the oath treaty, and still fully devote them to God. Not through their destruction, but through their ongoing service to him. Do you see what he's done? It's a brilliant solution. A brilliant solution. And it's an example of the kind of spirit-inspired wisdom that can come from a person who is truly in tune with God because of their deep knowledge and understanding of Scripture. My friends, our world, our country, our communities, our churches, our families need men and women who are like this. Men and women who commit themselves to knowing Scripture so well and so deeply that they can know the heart of God even in messy, complicated, difficult situations. Men and women who are so filled with the Holy Spirit that they are continuously taking all things to God in prayer. And all of us here this morning can become those kinds of men and women. And we can do that if we keep this book always on our lips, meditating on it day and night, being careful to do everything that is written in it. Because if we do that, then we can help our country and our communities and our churches and our families be prosperous and to be successful even in the midst of a very messy and complicated, beautiful, but very broken world. Now, there's no question that the story that we have here in Joshua 9 is a pretty messy one. One that a lot of people don't find particularly satisfying because of what it seems that the Gibeonites are able to get away with. And I get that. But I'd also remind you that this is not the first time in the book of Joshua that a bunch of Canaanites were able to escape destruction. You know, there are some ways in which the Gibeonites are another Rahab. We may not think much of the Gibeonites' deception here, but I'd remind you that Rahab also lied in the hope of creating an opportunity to be saved by aligning herself with Yahweh and with his specially chosen people. And just as Rahab's attitude towards the Israelites was very different than that of the other people there in Jericho, the Gibeonites' attitude towards Israel was very different than that of the rest of the Canaanites. 
I mean, because while the Canaanites were ready to make war, the Gibeonites pursued peace through their surrender and service. And in fact, history is going to bear out that God does approve of what Joshua does here. Gibeonite allegiance to Yahweh is going to prove to be both genuine and very long-lived. And that means that out of this mess emerges a story of grace and mercy and redemption. And maybe it's really hard for us to see in the midst of this mess, but, but even here the gospel can be found. Towards the end of the story, right there in verse 26, you can look at it yourself. Joshua is credited with saving the Gibeonites. Now that's interesting, not only because Joshua's name means the Lord saves, but this is also the only time in the book of Joshua in which he is credited with saving someone. And so out of this mess emerges a man named Salvation who makes a better way for people who are otherwise facing death to be saved. Does that sound familiar? Because it should. See, like the Gibeonites, we were all under a sentence of death. But the good news of the gospel is that we also have a Joshua, a better Joshua, the true Joshua, Jesus, who has made an even better way for us to be saved. Though we were otherwise facing death, we too can be saved through surrender and service. My friends, we are no less lost than the Gibeonites and no more deserving of the mercy that they found in their Joshua. This table that's set here in the midst of our sanctuary is intended to be a reminder of how the true and greater Joshua, Jesus, devoted himself fully to God so that we don't have to be destroyed. Instead, making a way for us to be saved from the powers of sin and death that had controlled us. This table points us to the cross as the place where all wrongs were made right. In this place, this table is a place where Jesus welcomes all people to come, no matter what kind of mess they might bring with them. So if you love Jesus and you want to follow him as your true rescuer king, then there is a place for you at this table. Just a moment, we're going to distribute the elements. Um, as we do, you're going to see that uh, there are two cups stacked on top of each other. Take both cups. One has the juice, one has the cracker. Um, you, don't need to be a covenant, you don't need to be a covenant member here at DFBC to share this meal with us. You just have to love Jesus and want to follow him. Um, and then we ask that you hold the elements uh, until everybody is served so that we can take them together at the end. And parents, as always, we leave it up to you to decide when your children are old enough to, to understand and participate. 
as we distribute these elements, I encourage you to use this, these moments to, of quiet to, to talk to God about what might be going on in your heart this morning. No matter how messy, whatever it is might seem to you. Now, do you have a hurt that needs to be healed? Then talk to God about that. Do you have questions and doubts that you just need answers to? Spend some time talking to God about that. Do you have a complicated, difficult situation that needs a whole lot of more wisdom than you have to know what to do? Then talk to God about that. If you love Jesus and you want to follow him, he welcomes you to this table, and we welcome you here as well. Okay. Scriptures tell us that, that on the night before Jesus went to the cross, he had a special meal with his closest followers. And at that meal, he took bread, he broke it, blessed it, and shared it with them, telling them to take and eat it. We're also told that he took the cup cup of wine and blessed it and passed it around and shared it with them. This bread represents the body of Christ, which was broken for them, which is broken for us. Take and eat in the knowledge that Jesus gave his life because of his love for you. This cup represents the blood of Jesus, which was spilled for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink, and the understanding that because of Jesus, your sins are forgiven. You've been accepted by God as one of his specially chosen children. And your eternal life in Christ has already begun. Take and drink. Let me pray. Father, we praise and worship you for your glory, for your holiness, for your faithfulness, for your mercies. Thank you for your commitment to your great unstoppable plan to make a people for yourself and then for inviting us to participate with you in that plan. Jesus, we pledge our love and loyalty to you as our true rescuer and king. Thank you for becoming one of us in order to show us how to truly live and then dying in our place for our sins, for making a way for us who are otherwise facing death to be saved. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would continue to use these scriptures to remind us of who you are, who we are, and how it is that you want us to live in this world. Use these powerful, precious words to shape our hearts and our minds so that we can live well and faithfully in our messy and beautiful and broken world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.